Hey guys, it's Dr. Z. All right, it's time for our COVID update, which could not be more timely. It's March 16th, 2020, and the ish is hitting the fan. And when I say that, I mean it both medically, which is one piece of this, and also psychologically, socially, economically. The <laughs> Much like the disease itself, the COVID-19 disease, much of the damage that we're seeing may come from the body's response rather than the disease itself. And what we're seeing now is fear, panic, hysteria as city after city goes under a lockdown to try to mitigate the spread of the virus. So what I wanna do today as a physician, as someone who's connected to a lot of the people working on this stuff, who's been following carefully, and who has a lot of skin in this game. I'm in the Bay Area of California. This is one of the epicenters. People at Stanford are seeing lots of cases. My wife, who is a chest radiologist, specializes in diseases and infections of the chest, is reading out these cases, and uh, we're seeing a lot of it. So it, we're starting to see an increase again in the number of cases. Now, <clears throat> what's happening though nationally is people are losing their minds, they're panicking. So what I wanna do is, first of all, talk about updates as we know them, overall course of the disease from a medical standpoint, and I'll use some medical terminology, but it'll also be accessible to people who are patients and are interested. All right, so let's do this, because we really have, the only way you fight anxiety, panic, and hysteria is through knowledge, understanding, preparation, and a rational look at the situation. And looking at the situation rationally, I can tell you that we're gonna get through this. We'll get through it, we'll manage it if we prepare and we don't, we don't respond in a way that actually makes things worse because that's what I'm seeing happening in many cases. Runs on the grocery stores. Today I went to just go get some milk. They just announced the Bay Area is gonna go on lockdown starting tonight. People are losing their minds. And yet I'm seeing kindness, I'm seeing courtesy, I'm seeing a degree of solidarity that only Americans can pull off and I'm proud to be a part of it. So we wanna encourage more of that. Okay, so here's, a, here's the update. COVID-19, which is the name, not of the virus, but of the disease, but I will use them interchangeably. The virus is the SARS-2 coronavirus, uh, is now at a point where we're past the initial phase where we were hoping to actually contain it. And there's a lot of theories as to why this is what happened, what ball was dropped, et cetera. And at this point, it's less important to try to start pointing fingers and blaming, although there'll be plenty of that. It's more important to kind of see what's happened so that we can understand where we might be now and where the puck's gonna be, okay, and skate to that. So when the first cases started getting reported in China, it had probably you know been circulating for a little bit, not a long time, but then you're starting to see sort of a lot of very sick people coming to the hospital. Roundabout then, there was probably travel and the first cases were percolating, maybe Washington State, et cetera. Now, because this is such an interesting disease um, medically, it's pretty clear now that COVID-19 disease caused by this coronavirus does not necessarily have to show really exuberant symptoms. So I think many, uh, many people, especially young people, maybe children, can be infected, can have virus replicating in their body, and can spread the disease without actually showing a whole bunch of symptoms or signs which makes it very difficult. Uh, you won't, maybe you won't have a fever, maybe any of the typical signs are fever, dry cough, some people get headaches, 
muscle aches, and then that can progress to shortness of breath, uh, the medical term being dyspnea. So there's other symptoms though. 10% of people can have these gastrointestinal symptoms where they get you know, stomach pain or nausea, vomiting as their first uh, symptom. And there's a reason for that because the way this virus actually works is it enters the body and it has these proteins on its surface that give it its name, the corona, the crown, this sort of, you know, if you think about the corona of the sun or a, a crown on a king, it's these little things that come off. Those bind to receptors on specific cells. Those receptors are called angiotensin converting enzyme two receptors, ACE2. Turns out they're present in pneumocytes, which are cells uh, of the lung, as well as intestinal cells, heart cells, et cetera. Now, why does this become important? People seem to have gastrointestinal symptoms and pulmonary symptoms. That's where the virus may first bind, enter the cell, replicate, and cause cellular damage. And as a result, um, you see these initial phase of symptoms. Now, again, it's pretty nonspecific in the early phase. So you can imagine that people are running around the community spreading this person to person, and it turns out that the reproductive number, in other words, the number of people that get infected from a single person who's already infected, seems to be between two to four for this disease, and that's pretty exuberant. You know, some influenzas, two to three. By comparison, something like measles is like 12 so one person infects 12 people, it's highly contagious. And the idea is it's spreading around the community. Now that, that infectivity, the ease with, with, with which this virus spreads is actually a crucial component because it tells you how rapidly through a population you're gonna get the spread. Now, since this thing is pretty infective and very important point, that infectivity is not necessarily a pure property of the virus, it contributes. It's also a property of how the people deal with the virus when they're infected. So here's a good example. Out in the wild, the reproductive number may be three. So three people get infected for every person that's infected. On the cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, that reproductive number was 15. One person infected 15 people, why? Because it's closed loop, ventilation, people are in close quarters, there weren't good isolation techniques, and how does this virus spread in the first place? So let's review that. The virus spreads through a couple of means, all right? One is droplets, and technically these are large respiratory droplets, so I cough or I sneeze, it aerosolizes these droplets, and they're pretty big, so they fall to earth in about a six feet radius or so, plus or minus, and if those end up going into people's eyes or mouths, you can get infected. But another way that it's gonna happen is that they spray this area and then people touch objects on which the virus is sitting through the droplet spray or through an infected person rubbing themselves and touching stuff. And as a result, it turns out that this virus can live, it appears anywhere between two hours and 24 plus hours on different surfaces. So wood is different than plastic, is different than paper, but it can live on all of those things. So. Why is this important? Well, this is a bit of foreshadowing because in the hospital, it's crucially important then to clean surfaces with a bleach solution or an alcohol solution or however you're disinfecting that's approved. 
And that takes time. So you're already starting to see a challenge with preventing what they call nosocomial infection. In other words, infections in the hospital because each room has to be clean and that means environmental services needs to be staffed up. It means there's time involved. It means if you do a CT scan, it can take 40 minutes to clean the scanner to disinfect it so that you can see other patients in it that aren't COVID patients. You would need like a dedicated scanner. So for all these reasons, this particular mode of transmission can be highly problematic. And this is why people are telling you, don't touch your hands, don't touch your nose, don't touch your eyes, don't touch, if you touch stuff, wash your hands for the duration of a couple happy birthdays using soap and water. Doesn't have to be antimicrobial soap, just plain old soap and water. And you know, hand sanitizers can help, but they're not as effective. And so they can help, but they're not as effective as hand washing. So. The idea then that this stuff is on in the environment, it can live for hours to longer, and then you're touching yourself, that's one mechanism of transmission. And so as a result, we're seeing that. Now, what about aerosol or airborne transmission? People talk about this, airborne transmission. Measles is airborne. That's why it can infect you know 12 people from a single person because it actually travels on the currents of air long distances. And it's one of the most infectious uh, viral diseases we know. And in this case with COVID, it seems to be becoming increasingly clear from our experience with it in hospitals that generally it's droplet spread and then people touching and so on. So the kind of precautions that a healthcare worker might use or someone out in the field or in the community would be hand washing, a healthcare worker with a known exposure or a known patient with COVID would wear you know, a standard surgical mask, um, eye face face gear to protect eyes in case there are droplets, contact gown, right, gloves, maybe a um, hairnet thing. So that kind of thing you would do kind of at baseline. But if it were airborne, aerosolized, it's different. You need a different type of mask, the N95 mask, which is much tighter and sealed against air currents and things like that. And what we're seeing is maybe that this uh, virus becomes aerosolized in healthcare settings when you're doing stuff to people. So you're doing a bronchoscopy or you're intubating somebody who's sick, that can cause aerosolization. The other concern is that if you ventilate somebody without using a closed loop ventilator, something along those lines, and, and stuff is escaping, that can aerosolize the virus. And that, this is a particularly important for my healthcare colleagues because you wanna make sure you know you have the best uh, protection that you can. And so it depends on what you're doing to that patient, which means you wanna do as little as possible if it's not necessary, and you wanna be safe and be cognizant of this. Now, the key thing for my healthcare colleagues that we're seeing is, this was in, in Ebola as well, and other uh, uh, sort of outbreaks. If you don't know how to put the personal protective equipment on, and more importantly, take it off right, you're gonna put yourself and others at risk. And that means like, you know, there are different, and again, this stuff is online. I can include some links. How do you pull the gown over? How do you take the mask off and the gloves off without touching virus that could be on those surfaces and then later touching your eyes? And there's a process for that, that you go through. And if you do it correctly and you wash your hands afterwards and you follow protocol, you're gonna minimize your risk. We need all hands on deck because there's two things we have to think about here. 
The first is number of infections are going up because what, I, what I've been talking about, it's been circulating in the community. Many infections are silent um, and we're only seeing the sickest ones, right? So when you look at Italy, they're talking about these huge numbers of very sick people. They have a very old population, a lot of rural medicine issues, and there's probably a lot more circulating in the community. And so they're not able to calculate uh, mortality numbers that are like, you know, less than 5% because they're only seeing the sickest people and they don't know actually it's out of how many they don't really know. Whereas in South Korea, um, a lot of younger people, much more aggressive testing. And so because of that great testing, you can actually calculate more accurate mortality numbers. They're looking at maybe half of 1%. That's a vastly different number, isn't it? So again, how you get these numbers uh, really matters. Now, one thing we should talk about, how is it that the horse got out of the barn in the US? Well, part of the problem was we weren't screening and testing early. There were problems with the tests. Labs couldn't get the, the um, access to the virus. The CDC and the government uh, and FDA have these arcane, FDA mostly have these arcane rules about how uh, you can test in outbreaks because they wanna make sure like with Ebola and things like that, that the tests are accurate. But in this rapidly moving situation, it became very difficult for outside labs to be able to generate tests. Then the CDC's own test has a, had a flawed component which delayed everything. And by now we've already, it's a series of events. Now, each government agency has good people in it trying to do the right thing, but they're not communicating well, they're not coordinating well. And so that was another potential problem. And then getting access to the virus itself was a problem because the Chinese have a policy of not necessarily sharing the virus itself. And so getting the virus was a problem. So for all these reasons, we're now way behind. And so the idea now is things are going to start to uh, really uh, potentially take off and that could overwhelm the healthcare system. So we have the healthcare system side of it, which are my colleagues who are now, we're seeing real, real, real numbers, you guys. Like this is not a made up thing. This is a real thing. Now, does that mean that people in this side, the community, should panic? Absolutely not. The panic is what's driving a lot of the problems on the healthcare side. People showing up to clinics with coughs and runny noses and sore throats saying, do I have COVID? And freaking out and demanding you know, testing and all that. And the truth is uh, that that's going to be very counterproductive because we're already out of the phase where containment would have helped. At this point, if you have symptoms, call your doctor, connect with your team, and they will tell you what the next step is, all right? But showing up, you know, to your doctor's office, I've already done a video on this, so I, I would watch that, you know, how to prevent COVID from getting worse. So that being said, now uh, we're in a situation where you have the healthcare system that could get overwhelmed because the need in sick patients for ventilators will outstrip very rapidly our infrastructure to do this. And we're starting to see that this, this is a danger. It happened in Italy. It's gonna happen in Spain and they're on national lockdowns now. So that's why you're seeing this very exuberant response by government officials a little late, because if you'd done this earlier uh, and actually tested effectively like what the South Koreans did, you would have had a much lower in, um, slope of infection and you wouldn't have necessarily overwhelmed the system. So now we're in a situation where we have to be more reactive than proactive, typical American healthcare. So all that being said, in patients themselves, there seem to be two phases of the infection itself. There's the first phase where Again, the virus enters the body, um, binds to these angiotensin receptors in 
um, the lung or in the gut, however, because the thing can also be transmitted through feces. That's another way of getting it. Again, wash your hands, wash your hands, cover your cough, right? Keep a distance from people. These are, this is what we've been telling everybody. And once it enters, it starts replicating. And it seems like this is the first phase, viral replication. In the majority of people, 80% plus, the immune system of the host keeps that viral replication in check, has a proper response. You get symptoms at that point, but they're not severe, and you get better over some time, one to two weeks. In patients for whom this doesn't happen, and they tend, not exclusively, but they tend to be older, have some cardiovascular disease, in fact, more so than lung disease. So there seems to be a trend reported that it's people with cardiovascular disease, hypertension, other kinds of heart disease, on cardiac medications, that sort of thing. And that seems to um, put them at higher risk for going into this next phase, which is this adaptive immunity phase. So several days later, people might be feeling okay, and then all of a sudden they get potentially worse. This is when the body's immune system really kicks in and viral replication might go down a little, but at this point, you have this uh, immune response. Now that can lead to damage to lung cells. Now, it seems to be there's some debate. Is the virus itself damaging these lung cells, which would explain why older people tend to get it worse because they have weaker immune systems and can't mount this exuberant response in the beginning and young people are able to fight it off, but the virus itself is what they call cytotoxic. So in other words, it's actually damaging pneumocytes, lung cells, kidney cells, heart cells that it can bind to. And in that way is actually causing the damage that then the immune system compounds by piling on with cells and debris. What we're seeing clinically and pathologically seems to maybe support some of that in at least some patients. So what happens is people are doing better and then all of a sudden they start to get a little more short of breath. And now remember this, there are some patients, particularly elderly patients, who will not manifest symptoms of shortness of breath. But if you put an oxygen probe on them, their oxygen is low, so-called silent hypoxia. So those older patients, you really have to be more careful. Uh, those are the ones that end up hospitalized, you wanna monitor them more, whereas younger, healthier people it seems to be less of a less of an issue. Again, there's always outliers, but it's less of an issue. So in these patients then, you might develop some shortness of breath and then it's a rapid deal. So then they fall into a couple buckets, the kind that do okay with oxygen by mask or by nasal cannula, trying to avoid these high flow oxygens where you're actually blowing virus around and that kind of thing. So that's another thing you have to think about. All right, and when you intubate, there's a series of procedures you wanna think about. There's online resources that I might link to that show good sequences of how to intubate safely. Uh, because when you're putting a breathing tube into someone who needs uh, help, that's when you can aerosolize virus and put everybody in the room at risk, all right? So something that, again, very important for healthcare colleagues. So in patients who are just on the nasal cannula, some of them do okay and they get better. But the other parts, they start needing more and more support very rapidly. If you if it turns out you're thinking about using BiPAP, one of those face masks with the BiPAP, the sources online are really saying at that point just intubate them. Just go mechanical ventilation because they're going to need it. 
it's just pretty much assured at that point. Because at that point, there's an exuberant reaction called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And what they're seeing pathologically is diffuse alveolar damage. So the little alveolar sacs become sludged up with material and gunk and uh, it, it impedes the ability to exchange gas uh, from the blood and the air through the lung. And that's why people have big trouble. What they're finding is when you, and again, it's more, it seems they're starting to, to think maybe there's a direct viral cytotoxic effect. And so it seems that they're requiring um, the kind of ventilation that you would require for ARDS, with one exception. It seems there's less of the very stiff lung that we sometimes see, stiff non-compliant lung, like a very stiff balloon. We're not seeing as much as that. Uh, much of that. We're seeing more... Um, the sort of uh, uh, um, need to prone ventilate, so put the patient prone because there there may be changes in VQ mismatch, there may be changes in secretion management and congestion in those alveoli that may be benefited by the prone positioning. So it's pretty clear that from the Italian experience and others that prone ventilation seems to work, ARDS protocols sort of... Um, permissive hypercapnia for people who are speaking my language here. Um, those kind of things that we would manage a typical viral or influenza pneumonia with in an elderly patient or another patient, there's nothing particularly exceptional about COVID-19. So we would treat it very similarly, right, with some caveats. So it seems that um, that kind of ventilator management, which means we got to support our respiratory therapists, our ICU docs, our ICU nurses, because they're going to be running and managing those ventilators. And there's going to be a lot of patients who need this assistance, a lot meaning if a, there's a ton of infections, the small percentage that need those are going to represent a lot of people. That's another reason we don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system. Um, so this being said, now you have you know people who are requiring ventilation. So what happens in those patients? Okay, what would you end up doing there? And by the way, given that there's two phases of this infection, that means maybe there's two different approaches in the different phases. In the first phase, there's some speculation that antivirals like the experimental remdesivir and um, chloroquine and these kind of things that people are talking about, could they be helpful, right? Kaletra, which is a HIV anti antiretroviral, um, could those be useful in the first phase, early rather than later, when virus is replicating and it's not a, so much an immune response compounding it? And then later, it's less helpful, but maybe later what may be more helpful is immune modulation. Now, it seems clear from data that steroids are associated with worst outcomes. And so the idea of putting people on steroids is not it's not a comfortable thing right now because we may be making things worse. And again, is it because we're allowing viral replication to occur and it's cytotoxic? Or is there some other reason? Are we allowing um, uh, the higher likelihood of secondary bacterial infections associated with ventilators and other things like that? Or uh, is there some other reason you know, that we're uh, you know, promoting cardiomyopathy or other things that can happen with steroids? We don't know. But we know that the association is bad, but there's some theorizing that maybe steroids earlier, um, sorry, steroids later in the disease uh, might be more effective if there's an immune component that we're trying to suppress. So we don't know yet, but the current teaching is don't use steroids if you can avoid them unless somebody needs them for other reasons, bad COPD, et cetera. Um, 
So <clears throat> at this point, you have these ventilated patients. Now, what happens to the ventilated patients? Well, some of them get better with conservative management. Now, what you have to watch for are a couple of things. What they're seeing is that this COVID-19 disease, um, and again, I apologize because I'm doing this out of my brain. I don't have notes or anything. I have a laptop, but I can't keep track of any notes. So I apologize if it's a little desequenced, but I do it as I do it. <clears throat> in the beginning of the infections, you can look at certain laboratory parameters. Now, one of those laboratory parameters that's really interesting is that your white blood cell count is typically normal or low. It's very rarely high. So if you see a high white count, you may wanna think there's a second co-infection, whether it's bacterial or something else. You just wanna think about that. The second thing to think about is procalcitonin. Procalcitonin is often used in ICU settings to look for infections. So bacterial infections, things like that can raise your procalcitonin level and give you a sense that there's an infection going on, particularly in patients who are septic. In COVID-19 disease, procalcitonin without other complications is often normal. So it's a good thing to follow a procalcitonin because if it becomes abnormal, that may be a sign that you've got a secondary infection, at which point something like an antibiotic or other cultures or even rarely bronchoalveolar lavage through bronch, bronchoscopy may be necessary. In general, you wanna avoid that because it's a great way to get your healthcare professionals infected. Um, and it's not really helpful in standard COVID disease. But if you're looking for a secondary infection, that can be helpful. So procalcitonin. The other things you see that are abnormal are liver function tests. Now this becomes important because there's been some people out of Washington ICU docs that have been writing in saying, you know, remdesivir, this uh, compassionate use protocol for this experimental drug developed by Gilead for Ebola, um, there's been problems getting patients approved because you have to have LFTs that aren't too, liver function tests that aren't too abnormal. And the problem with this particular disease is the liver function tests are often abnormal. And we don't know whether that's a direct effect or some secondary effect of the virus. So something you can watch are, are again, liver function tests. Kidney function does tend to take a hit, although not often severe initially. So creatinine still less than two, creatinine clearance still greater than 30 um, in a lot of the experience that people have had. Now remember, people who are older have a lot of comorbidities, all bets can be off because they can have problems with all kinds of things, uh, including something called cytokine storm. So cytokine storm is where the immune system just goes totally belligerent and you get shock uh, a picture of sepsis, multi-organ failure, and potentially death. So again, that in that case, all bets are off. But otherwise, you're looking at, you know, kidneys, liver, slight abnormalities. We talked about procalcitonin, the um, complete blood cell count, um, and then this is something I should mention. Well, let me let me keep with these particular labs. All right. What they found is that because these patients aren't necessarily um, super dehydrated or shocky, pouring fluids in is a terrible idea. So you wanna be very conservative with the fluids in these patients. Uh, it's not like your standard sepsis where you still have to be careful, but in this case, it's particularly uh, salient that you don't wanna flood with fluids. So um, you wanna keep an eye, Don't maybe don't do maintenance fluids if you don't have to, that sort of thing, because it can be counterproductive, especially when we talk about what seems to be killing some of these patients, which is acute asystole or other uh, cardiac arrest. So this is an interesting thing. People start to get better sometimes. They even maybe come off the vent 
and then they have cardiac arrest. And all of a sudden, someone who had a normal ejection fraction, normal heart, has an EF of 10, they're running a code, it's often asystole or you know, V-fib, and they're, they're done, it's it. And the thought is there's a myositis going on. Myositis is inflammation or damage to the myocardial cells, the cells of the heart. Well, it turns out we don't know if that's due to a direct viral effect, because we know there's ACE receptors. We don't know if it's due to some of the medication or treatment or stress of being ICU, uh, especially why, remember we talked about it's people with cardiac disease that seem to have the highest problems with this. Could there be pre-existing stuff? Or is it uh, secondary to the cytokine storm itself, which can cause a myopathy? Or is it a direct viral myocarditis? We don't really know yet. There's some speculation, but we don't know yet. The bottom line is you have to watch very carefully for this dreaded complication. The questions about early pacing, uh, you know, careful cardiac monitoring, that kind of thing, those things arise, making sure electrolytes are good. Um, but again, until we know exactly kind of the etiology of it, it's hard to uh, have a good course of action for how to manage the myocardial stuff. Now, this is why people have talked about ACE inhibitors. By giving an ACE inhibitor, could you prevent viral binding and this kind of thing? But what the data seems to preliminarily show is that people on ACE inhibitors seem to do worse. Now, again, this is associational data. So they're already on ACE inhibitors, which means they already have a cardiac issue, hypertension, heart failure, diabetes, that, that is requiring an ACE, and so it's an associational thing. So it's hard to tease out, right? Um, the reason, by the way, people are talking about um, Advil and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories early in the disease, the French health minister says, don't use these, right? It's based on the idea that it may be slightly immunosuppressive in the early replicative phase of the disease where virus is replicating, where you want the immune system to tamp it down. Now, again, there's not really good evidence for this. It may be associational. So making a blanket statement like that may not be a good idea, but think of it this way. If you're gonna end up developing some renal insufficiency, kidney problems, stress ulcers from the being ICU, you know, bound. NSAIDs are not a good idea to begin with. So Tylenol or paracetamol, if you're nasty, uh, is a better idea in that case anyways. So you want to think about that. All right. So at this point, now let's back up for a second. Remember I said I'm disjointed because I don't really go by notes. Um, I'm trying to synthesize what we've been learning over the course of the last few weeks from colleagues, from data online, from a lot of stuff. Why, okay, what would we want, first of all, in our testing when we're screening patients for this thing, for this type of disease, to contain it? We would want a test that is rapid, that is available at the point of care, and that has very few false negatives. What is a false negative? A false negative means you do the test and it falsely tells you that it's negative. So in other words, someone with COVID-19 disease is told they're okay. They go out in the community, they infect a ton of people. Well, it turns out 
false positives are less problematic. In other words, the test tells you you're infected because what happens to that person? They go into quarantine. So at least it's damaging to them, right? Psychologically, but it's not damaging to society as much. A false negative is damaging to the, to the, to the fight against this thing. So what we find with this particular test, uh, the PCR, at least early on, it's got a pretty poor sensitivity, meaning there are a lot of false negatives. Maybe it's 60% sensitive. So that means you're sending home a lot of people that may still be positive. So what the Chinese were doing to overcome that was CT scans. They were screening with CT um, because it's more sensitive when you have a high clinical suspicion. And in this country, we're not gonna really do that, all right? And part of the problem is disinfecting those scanners takes 40 minutes. It's not a very good way. You can look at patients clinically and do the rapid test and put two and two together, hopefully. So you want a test that's got you know, good sensitivity um, and you combine it with other things. So chest X-ray, not very sensitive, 50, 60%, but you see findings. So my wife showed me quite a few and it's quite, look, if you don't read X-rays a lot, you're gonna miss them. But to somebody who reads a lot of X-rays, it's pretty clear. You see these sort of patchy, you know, um, often peripheral opacities. We're not seeing a lot of pleural effusions, pleural thickening, things like that. It's kind of atypical. So if you see that, you may want to think about co-infection or a complication. Um, the CT shows ground glass opacities, often peripherally in the lung and basilar and often bilaterally. And the they can become confluent in severe disease. So it does kind of correlate a little bit to severity. Um, you're not seeing a lot of lymphadenopathy, big lymph nodes. You're not seeing pleural effusions. Um, so those are interesting findings. And so our screening tests are kind of still pretty crappy. So we have to go a little bit on clinical um, clinical intuition. And that's another reason that, you know, again, the Koreans did it very quickly, but now we're already late. So at this point, we want to do a lot of telemedicine. We want to kind of screen people over phone and video, asking good questions, risk stratifying them. What's your age, your comorbidities, uh, that kind of thing. Now, the other twist in this is there's some speculation that since this virus replicates, as it replicates, it mutates, we're seeing maybe changes in patterns. So early on, mortality was very high. Later on, we're seeing um, mortality rates maybe dropping. And is that because there are now two strains of virus? Um, one that has a higher mortality, in other words, it's more virulent, and the other that has a lesser mortality. And how are these changing over time? We don't entirely know. We also don't know how temperature is gonna affect this thing long-term. Is the summer gonna give us a relief like it does for influenza? Perhaps the virus doesn't live on surfaces as long when it's hot. Perhaps there's less people packed together. People are outdoors more, we don't know. So these are things that are still unknown. So um, looking at, again, so we talked about radiology. So what you see on CT, what you see on X-ray, you can also do pulmonary ultrasound. There's some resources online. MCRIT is a great resource for all this stuff, emcrit.org. My friend Scott Weingart runs that site, and it's got a great set of resources for all these things for managing these patients. Um, highly, highly recommend it. I'll link to it in the, uh, <clears throat> in the notes. So you have ultrasound, chest x-ray, uh, CT scan, you have the lab testing that we talked about. The other thing we notice is coagulation parameters, D-dimer can sometimes be elevated. Over time, you can develop disseminated intravascular coagulation, and so you wanna monitor coags 
fairly regularly, and that may be just part of this inflammatory cascade. C-reactive protein is another test that has shown some interesting correlations to disease severity. So people who are very sick have higher inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein, CRP. And so there may be some utility to checking it just to understand the potential for severity and where the patient is. But again, you can also do that clinically without doing a bunch of blood. Um, I'm trying to think if there's other major testing uh, on this. I, I am not recalling anything off the top of the bat. Those are the main things that stick with me when I think about this. So. You know, again, for these patients now, they're going to require ventilators. They're going to require safe intubation, safe for the staff. They're going to require environmental services to turn over rooms, which means we have to be staffed. They're going to require respiratory therapists to help manage the vents. They're going to require ICU-level beds and cardiac monitoring. Um, they're going to require looking at new therapies like remdesivir, and I hope I'm even saying that right because I've never had to say that word, um, thankfully, Kaletra, chloroquine, doesn't look like ACE inhibitors are a thing um, and other sort of you know speculation around steroids and those kind of things. So we're in a state now where in the, on the healthcare side of this equation, people are going to get extremely busy. They're going to be very stressed. They're going to need all our support. That's what keeps me up at night, all right? The community side of it, I'm going to be totally honest with you, does not keep me up at night because you are more likely to die from flu because you're more likely to get flu because it's much more widespread, even with a lower mortality. Flu kills. Listen, let's just be very clear here. We're scared of this virus because it's an unknown and because it spreads rapidly and because it does have a mortality rate that's higher than flu. However, this 10 times higher thing is a panic number. You need to look at absolute risk, not relative risk. What's your absolute risk of getting and dying of this? It's so low. It's higher in elderly people, people with comorbidities, but they can take precautions, staying home, isolating, et cetera. But what we've had to do now is put a draconian hammer on everything. It's already out of the barn. Draconian hammer on everything, which is gonna harm our poorest people, middle-class business owners, our economy. Um, it's gonna harm uh, 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 people long-term because we're wrecking their livelihoods. This is something we really have to think about, guys. Now we're in this position because the ball was dropped early on on containment, and now we're here having this discussion. So the community, I don't worry that about that. I know the community's panicked. I'll tell you what I worry about, fear and stupidity. And you know the idea that people are capitalizing on this to really blow it up for the average Joe and make it such that they're panicking and running to the doctor. Who I worry about are my colleagues in medicine because they're gonna deal with this, whether it's an, a lighter epidemic or a serious one, they're going to be slammed and we need to help them. And that means if they're telling you work from home, if they're telling you keep away from other people, if they're telling you don't have big gatherings, if they're telling you wash your damn hands, if they're telling you those things, just do it, all right? Let's do it with a smile and understand that we come together in these situations to help our most vulnerable. That's what it is. And that's this group of people, the caregivers and the sickest patients that are gonna suffer through this. Now, bottom line is we're gonna get through it, period. Um, it is going to be a tough few weeks, maybe months, but we're gonna get through it. 
And it means that we have to be rational. It means that we cannot let fear drive us. And, you know, one thing I'll say is uh, I have been trying really hard every morning to get up very early and do at least 30 minutes of meditation. And that keeps me centered because even I can get very phased if I sit and watch the news. You start second guessing and going, wait, what's it? what about this? What about... The truth is, this is something that is explainable. There's some unknowns, but we know what we need to do now, which is slow the slow the rate of new infections, help learn and understand how to manage the infections we have, support our healthcare professionals, support each other, and then work hard on vaccines and future prevention and future coordination. That's the key thing. There's a lot of politicization, there's a lot of blame. None of that is gonna be helpful right now. What's gonna be helpful is the task at hand. Then we can throw the feces later, okay? hopefully COVID negative feces. So do me a favor. I hope this was helpful. Again, I do this kind of off the top of my head and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad, but I just hate that rehearsed like reading off notes thing. It makes me wanna stab myself in the eye. I would rather get COVID than have to watch a lecture like that. But for some people that's better. There's plenty of resources online for that. I'm gonna put links in the thing. What I'd love it is if you share this, if you leave a comment, if you hit like, um, if you really want to support what we do, becoming a supporter, our supporter tribe has a private discussion group. It's about, I don't know, a few thousand people now. And we have discussions uh, in under closed doors that you can't have that are very helpful. We support each other and share data and then spread it out to the world. So the supporter tribe on Facebook, uh, support, you can support us on YouTube by becoming a member. Patreon is another way. All right, guys, do me a favor. Chill. To everybody on the front lines, we're thinking about you supporting you. We're going to try to continue to educate with these updates and stay safe out there. We are out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.